Over the holiday break, we are bringing you The Sound Aquatic, a five-episode mini-podcast published by Hakai Magazine in May of 2021. Here's episode five, extremely loud and incredibly close. Did you hear what she said? <gasps> Tell me more. Overhearing conversations is one of life's guilty pleasures. In this time of social distancing, I really miss those snippets of strangers discussing their breakups at the next table or plotting business takeovers in the airplane seat behind me. I find solace in the realization that some conversations could only be heard because of COVID-19. So we have this hydrophone that's anchored on the bottom of the ocean. So that's an underwater microphone, basically. It has a five-mile cable, runs all the way to computer in my office here. And so I have a little speaker where I can listen to what's going on in the ocean at any moment. <laughs> Christine is an expert ocean listener. Like a new parent who grows accustomed to the ordinary sounds coming through a baby monitor, Christine has spent years of her professional life listening to the sounds of Glacier Bay through a direct feed to her office. There are whales, you know, vocalizing back and forth. And it was just like this, you know, auditory scene that I, I feel really lucky to have been able to hear. If there had been boat noise in the background, I would, I would have a very low chance of being able to hear that. The pandemic lockdowns kept so many cruise ships and other loud vessels out of Glacier Bay, Alaska, that for the first time ever, Christine Gabriel, a wildlife biologist at Glacier Bay National Park, was able to hear a mum and baby humpback whale whispering to each other. Whale mothers and calves speak in whispers to avoid being heard by predators like sharks and killer whales. The rareness of this recording drives home just how noisy the ocean typically is. And that's what we're exploring in this episode of The Sound Aquatic, The Ocean and the Anthropos. My name is Ellen Kelsey, and in this episode, we're looking at how ships and the other noisy things we add to the ocean impact animals, and what we're learning by listening when those noises suddenly stopped. sudden opportunity to listen to the ocean without the high levels of human-created noise has sparked a flurry of experiments, some fortuitous, some ingenious, and some unrepeatable under any other circumstances. A year later, scientists like Christine are just getting a glimpse of what all this data from the anthropause is telling us. Many studies of ocean noise pollution have focused on whales, a wide range of species whose relationships to shipping traffic are fractious. We were doing a study uh, looking at how blue whales respond to Navy sonar. And we had deployed these suction cup attached tags on this blue whale off LA Long Beach. And while we were tracking it to you know, do this other study, this ship comes through and goes right over the top of the blue whale. <laughs> and we thought was going to hit it. <laughs> and 
we realized, whoa, this is pretty crazy, you know, what, what happened here? And in, in tens of meters of distance from the ship, it dove down below the hull of the ship and was missed being hit by this really small distance by this change in, in diving behavior. John Kellenbokaitis is a research biologist with the Cascadia Research Collective. That shocking close call between a ship and a blue whale, it happens way more often than you might think. You know, one whale we had to tag on for 10 days to look at fine scale movements and it had 14 near misses with ships in that 10 day period. That whale with the 14 encounters was actually off of San Francisco Bay. And uh, there are three different shipping lanes that re come into San Francisco Bay. And it turned out this whale was actually feeding, moving around in all three of the lanes. 14 near misses in 10 days. We rarely think of the ocean as a collection of intersecting superhighways, but with global freight demand forecasted to triple by 2050, we should. Like they're super highways of ships. They're coming and going all the time. And you just think like those whales are living beside a highway. That's podcast producer Amy Kingdon. I don't know about you, but or if in you, the middle of it in the case of the yeah. one that's moving around those shipping lanes. Like if you buy a house and there's a highway right outside, that's generally considered a negative thing, yeah. right? Mostly because yeah. of the noise. And so you got to think like we just built a 18 lane expressway two actually because there's two ports i think right beside each other you know and that's the main conduit for um you know stuff coming in from from asia from china from japan from korea from southeast asia all of that trans-pacific stuff global ship traffic more than doubled between 1950 and 2000 bringing exponential increases in noise pollution imagine a soft din that began in the days of the 1950s rock and roll era becoming a little more annoying during the 60s revolution. Too flat out rude in the disco funk of the 70s. Reaching volumes you just couldn't ignore in the gnarly 80s. And hitting truly obnoxious by the techno nirvana of the 90s in the ocean during every one of those decades ship traffic noise doubled in intensity so what do we do to keep whales safer from ships and reduce noise pollution for john kalambokaitis the answer is clear slow down the ships slowing down ships is sort of this impressive thing because it it it, it reduces the lethality of ship strikes <clears throat> it dramatically reduces fuel usage uh, it reduces the amount of air emissions uh, of pollutants, and it reduces the sound production. So it's kind of like a win on four different fronts. According to a report prepared for a meeting of the International Maritime Organization, a 20% reduction in ship speed would reduce underwater noise pollution by 66%, and the chance of a fatal collision between a ship and a whale by 78%. When I asked Francis Juanez, professor of fisheries at the University of Victoria, where positive developments are happening, I'm delighted he picks an example super close to home. The Port of Vancouver has had a very successful program of asking ships to slow down on their approach to the port, and it's led to really, really reduced levels of noise. So we know that that can happen. 
In addition to slowing ships down, there are ways to engineer them to be quieter from the inside out. Shipbuilders can physically isolate engines from metal hulls and shape propellers in ways that produce less shock waves in the water. But, you know, it's expensive, um, and so I'm sure that shipbuilders are, uh, I'm not happy to do that immediately, but, uh, but I see that as, as what will happen in the, in the future, particularly if there's legislation that requires them to do that. There are um, quieter ways to do marine construction as well. There are ways to build um, bubble sheets, for example, so that the noise doesn't travel as far as it might otherwise. There are ways to, to drill more quietly. Um, so the technologies are there. Isabel Cote, the marine biologist at Simon Fraser University, who we met in episode two, describes how much impact a single motorboat traveling above a reef can have on the delicate relationship between a cleaner wrasse fish and the fish that it is cleaning. Uh, so we had this experiment where we'd been watching cleaner fish for 20 minutes and then we sent up a signal and then a boat came zooming over us for 20 minutes and uh, we found that that um, increased the amount of aggression that was going on between the cleaner fish and its client. So, so, so fish go back to their normal behavior pretty quickly. But that, that again raised a, you know, a bunch of questions about, well, what happens when, when these fish are in an area where there's continuous, um, continuous background sound like that? Uh, you know, do they habituate or do they end up sort of being hyper aggressive all the time? What effects ultimately does that have on the fish sort of longer term? What a noise an oyster, what a noise an oyster, any noise an oyster, an oyster, but a noisy noise an oyster, an oyster, moist. What a noise an oyster, what a noise an oyster, a noisy noise an oyster, an oyster, That famous tongue twister is just harmless fun, but the noisiest noises in the ocean are shockingly violent. That explosive underwater sound was made by a seismic air gun. Is that the loudest thing that we make in the ocean? seismic air guns or are there other sounds that we make that are I would imagine some ships get pretty loud I think it's a it's one of those cases I think where ship traffic is is the most chronic noise problem mm. but the loudest noise are these seismic air guns so how does that actually affect the animals themselves does that I mean we know they have fish have ears now I mean does that blow out their ears I mean does that hurt them or does it just disrupt their ability to communicate with each other Producers Kat Pine, Amy Kingdon, and I didn't have to search far for the answer. A 2019 issue of the prestigious journal Nature documents the horrifying repercussions of these explosive sounds. The most obvious sign of trouble came when masses of dead-beaked whales started showing up on beaches. Loud sounds seemed to trigger panic dives that caused a kind of decompression sickness in the cetaceans and hemorrhages in their brains and hearts. In the five decades before 1950, researchers recorded just seven mass strandings. But from then to 2004, after the introduction of high-power sonar for naval operations, there were more than 120. Studies show that exposure to loud noises can damage ears and cause hearing loss in cetaceans. 
Uh, so I'm Professor Jason Simmons. I'm a research scientist at the Institute for Marine Antarctic Studies in Hobart, Tasmania, Australia. So air guns are what the petroleum, uh, oil and gas industry use for looking at the deposits in the in the Earth's crust and seafloor. From that standpoint, it sounds, you know, oh, that's very logical. <laughs> like, what a good thing. It's not introducing any foreign substances. It's just using air. But it's really the, it's the volume of the sound. Is that right? Yes. So uh, it can get over 200 decibels. It's, it's high levels of sound. And when you're saying 200 decibels, for people who don't know how loud that is, is there a, a familiar comparison you might use? Mm, uh, I guess I think you know a jumbo jet taking off nearby. The blast of a seismic air gun used to map the seafloor for oil and gas can be as loud as a rocket launch. Ship engines and oil drilling can reach the roar of a rock concert. Some of these sounds are audible for hundreds of kilometers. When it comes to studying the effect of seismic air guns on animals other than whales, you can't get much smaller than, well, most zooplankton. Yep, tiny organisms make up a billion tons of ocean animal life. And the general understanding was that within, you know, you could get plankton killed um, within a few meters of the air gun, but beyond that, nothing. And we showed that there was a, you know, a large increase in mortality, a change in abundance, you know, up to a kilometer away from the air gun. What Jason Siemens is saying is that seismic air guns kill the tiny organisms that feed everything from fish to whales within a kilometer of the blast. Sound is a pressure wave, and for these minuscule animals, the pressure of the water as a sound wave passes through them, hits them like a car crash and kills them. Sorts of research we're, we're doing are, are relatively new. There's been lots of work on what's the impact on whales and dolphins and, and uh, seals, those sorts of things, the marine mammals. But those animals you don't see, the invertebrates, uh, the animals that are sitting on the bottom, that play an in incredibly important role in, um, in the food chain, in, in the ecosystem, and, and often are animals that can't move out of the way, unlike you know, whales and dolphins and those sorts of things. Jason's work is especially difficult and important because he's studying the real-time impacts of seismic air guns while they're actively firing in the ocean. It's very dangerous getting close to it, and as soon as you get close to them, they'll be on the radio saying, you need to move back. Um, they have ships that are working with them, clearing people out of the way, um, because they just can't stop. You know, once they start, they just, just can't stop. It, it's it's tricky, and then you've got you know different weather conditions to deal with. It, it, it's it's really difficult to do. And that's not to mention the logistics of introducing 360 octopuses into the study. Half were placed in commercial fishery octopus pots and exposed to the seismic arrays, and half were placed in the pots but not exposed to the seismic air gun sounds. Afterwards, Jason's team took them back to the lab to study the long-term effects. You know, we had three months of looking after these octopus, feeding them, caring for them, all that. There's no, no time off, it's just constant. Um, and with that many animals, and then their offspring as well, uh, halfway through was thinking, why on earth did I come up with this idea? It seemed like a great idea at the time, but man, it was a lot of work. This monumental effort is worth it. 
Jason is driven by the big question of how seismic air guns impact not just whales or octopuses, but entire ecosystems of ocean animals. So what does it mean, not on the individual level, but the population level? Will they still reproduce you know, enough offspring uh, to keep the population going? Those sorts of questions are still really unsolved. Lobsters, scallops, and other invertebrates are all vulnerable to ocean noise, Jason tells me. The pressure of loud noises can actually harm their bodies. Often the thing that gets hurt is their sense of balance. So if you're a lobster, the only way you know what weighs up and can you know, balance on your legs properly is because of this organ. Um, and so the work we did with the lobsters, we showed that the seismic signal was, was shearing off these hair cells. So when you turned a lobster on its back, if it was exposed to seismic signals, it took longer to get itself off its back than an animal that wasn't. In the course of that experiment, Jason made an unexpected and profound discovery. Some of the lobsters in his control group, who were not exposed to seismic air gun blasts, were also missing their hair cells, but their balance was absolutely fine. And it was a real shock, you know, what is going on here? And so what we what we proposed is that those animals are exposed to noise, not seismic, but you know, vessel noise, you know, various other things. And you know, you know, this was a real surprise. It turns out those lobsters were collected from a busy shipping channel close to the University of Tasmania, where Jason is based. The noise in that channel caused the same kinds of damage to the delicate hairs as the blast from the seismic air guns. But remarkably, under this constant bombardment of everyday sound, these lobsters had adapted. The resilience of some species in the face of noisier oceans is astonishing. We're seeing the same thing with humpback whales. As commercial whaling has ended in most countries around the world, Many humpback whale populations are making spectacular recoveries, but they're doing it in oceans that are growing noisier and noisier. How is this possible? Here's Christine again. I admit that it sounds a little bleak when you think about uh, whales having less room to communicate, but um, you know, the, the reality is that globally, Animals are contending with humans all over the place, including the sound environment. And sometimes the, it's the wind or the rain that's creating that noise. So they're evolved, you know, to be able to, to adapt to things. However, they've only had to contend with vessel traffic as, a, you know, human noise for about 200 years. So they're still, uh, you know, probably getting the hang of it. But they do kind of the same kinds of things. We, they seem to do the same kinds of things that you or I would do if we were trying to communicate and it was noisy in that maybe they would get closer together, maybe they would talk louder, maybe they would uh, repeat themselves. They, the whales seem to do all of these same kinds of things that we do, but it's something that we really want to understand better. The study that we're planning to do with my colleague Michelle Fournay, who's now at Cornell University, we are going to try to look at whether the repertoire and the patterns of vocalizations that the whales use during this quiet period are, are fundamentally different from what they did in other years. I am awed by the capacity of these animals to try to cope with such daunting circumstances. It drives me to push even harder for quieter oceans. Do you remember back to episode one where Christian Roots told us why he and his colleagues invented the word anthropause? Well, anthropause was chosen as a 2020 word of the year by Oxford Dictionaries, alongside words like doom-scrolling, lockdown, and Black Lives Matter. The virus forced us to do what nothing else had so far, 
to actually stop making so much noise. In February 2021, Francis Juanes, along with a host of international researchers, released a major report on the issue of global ocean noise pollution. I do feel hopeful. I do very much feel hopeful. The next set of work that I think will be very inspiring is the results that are coming out due to the lockdown. So we will show, and lots of people will show, that um, shipping went down for, and all sorts of other noise uh, sources stopped essentially for six weeks. And so now we're starting to see what the results of that was. We saw animals where they'd never been before. Um, their ability to communicate increased and the levels of noise went down um, by a lot. I mean, in, in, at levels that we've never seen before. There'd never been an experiment like that since 9-11. Um, and so, except this one was, was much longer in nature. So I think that'll be another thing that will captivate the public's attention, I hope. My name is La God. That's my Tsimsian name. I come from the community of Hartley Bay, uh, the Gitgat First Nation, which is a Tsimsian community. And I come from the uh, Raven clan, the Raven lineage. And my English name is Spencer Greening. I'm, I'm an anthropologist. Um, sometimes re people refer to me as a, a Gitgat scholar. As we get to the end of our podcast series, I'm going to do something unusual for a podcast host and be silent for a few minutes to listen to the wisdom of someone whose ancestors found ways to live harmoniously with animals for millennia by appreciating the value of silence and sound. Sound is something that can be forgotten in the modern era. And uh, I'm, I'm truly grateful that I've been taught what I would call, I guess, protocols around sound by some of my elders. I've, I've heard it plenty of times up and down the coast while harvesting, setting a net for fish or, uh, or setting branches for herring egg. A lot of the old people, uh, not only in my village, but like I say, up and down the coast, talk about the importance of doing it as quiet as possible. I mean, there's definitely reasons for it. I, I think, and there's this mix of reasons too. Sometimes it's spiritual, and sometimes it might be because doing that will attract more fish or have a more successful harvest. When it comes to the spiritual aspect of silence, there are countless places in our territory where we have these agreements with what we call Nachnoch or Spinachnoch, which are these mystical beings or spiritual beings who often live underwater, but they can take the form of an array of things. Sometimes they can look like a sea monster, sometimes they can look like a thing of the wildest imagination that lives in the mountains. But in particular, these beings, we have these agreements and, and sort of treaties with them of when we're in their territory, we have to respect sound. And when we don't respect sound, then bad things will happen. The, the weather in that area can turn, the tides can go sort of haywire. Um, the way the wind comes will be shifted and redirected and, and, and things will sort of go out of tune, so to speak. And so that's one example that sort of brings us into this conversation of what these treaties can look like. And it's interesting, on top of silence, there's also an importance in making sound sometimes. And so it's not just this one-sided piece of like, nature in its essence is quiet, but nature in its essence has 
silence and noise and there's a way to understand both of those things that live in congruence with the laws that we've formalized as indigenous people on these territories. And so I think of songs becoming a part of that sound, that noise, so to speak, of the landscape that it, you know, sometimes places you're supposed to sing before something happens. Uh, when we harvest cedar bark, often you're supposed to speak to that plant first. And you take up space in that sound space, but there's this respectful way of doing it. I, I think it's worth, I guess, expanding our minds on this idea of good sound. Maybe we won't ever know it, but the fact that we can explore it and, and continue to and, and express through that is something we should think about on the coast and, and ask, what does the coast want? What kind of sound do our oceans want? And, and, to, question, and to wonder which, which sounds are disrespectful and which sounds are too much. That's the great thing about ocean noise pollution. Yes, the great thing. When you stop making noise, it's gone. That's not true of almost any other pollutant. Think of oil or carbon dioxide. But noise is not a legacy pollutant. Even in a few short hours from the time of the lockdowns, the ocean soundscape changed completely. Back to the way it was. Dolphins whistled, fish grunted, lobsters clacked, humpbacks whistled. We'd like to thank John Kalambukaitis from the Cascadia Research Collective, Isabel Cote at Simon Fraser University, Christine Gabriel of Glacier Bay National Park, Francis Juanes at the University of Victoria, Julie Watson of the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, Jason Siemens at the University of Tasmania, and Spencer Greening, who is also known by his Simshin name, Thagode, who is a Gitgat scholar from the Simshin Nation of the northwest coast of British Columbia. This episode of The Sound Aquatic, The Ocean and the Anthropause was produced by Amy Kingdon, Katrina Pine, and me, Ellen Kelsey. Our theme music is by Tobin Stokes. The team also includes Adrian Mason, Jude Isabella, and fact-checker Megan Osmond-Jones. We are an endeavor of Hakai Magazine and are produced on the shores of the Salish Sea in Victoria, British Columbia. <laughs>